amen, a uh, little uh, pretext here, looking into a mirror. In fact, I did this this morning, and this is a joke I often tell, but I think it's funny, so I'm going to tell it again. Wash the face, look up, and I made eye contact with the scoundrel that's ruining my life. And he repeated every word I was saying to him right back at me at the exact same time, almost as if he knew what I was going to say. And I said, you, you're the one. <laughs> you're the one who doesn't drink enough water and doesn't stay hydrated and, and eats the sugar you're not supposed to eat instead of the vegetables. And you're the one who stays up too late reading and studying and gets up too early and runs. Why are you ruining my life? But in truth, I can look in the mirror and say, you are the one who has sinned. But you are also the one whom God has redeemed. So let's look into the mirror now. Now, this is not a fun thing to examine ourselves. Look at verse 23. If you are a hearer and not a doer, so last week we talked about being a doer of the word, which is worship. If I am only a hearer, if I only hear about God, hear God's word, and I never do God's word, this is what I am like. I am like the man who looks at his natural face in a mirror, right? It's such a great example of the vanity of the flesh because each and every one of us in the flesh could look in the mirror and find nothing wrong. Behold the perfect reflection that stares back at me in appearance and in mindset. Is this the truth of looking in the mirror? No. <laughs> in fact, looking in the mirror, I see all the imperfections. And once I look past the skin and I see the spiritual imperfections on the inside, Suddenly I go, I don't want to look in this mirror anymore. And now it becomes easy, instead of looking in the mirror, to look at someone else. And examine them for spiritual imperfections. Examine their lives to see how they are measuring up against mine. And it's easy to find somebody not doing as good as me according to my standards. And then I begin to judge. And Matthew 7 says to judge with equal scales, but I begin to judge with unequal scales. I begin to say things to them I won't even say to myself. I saw this firsthand in a decade of student ministry, so willing to tell a child what we're not willing to tell ourselves about how to behave. I did it myself. Hey, everyone quit yelling in here. But as soon as I saw something, I would yell. And a sharp kid would catch me and go, Mr. Josh, you just said not to yell. Do as I say, not as I do, students. I did it yesterday. I'm going to tell the story, Colby. I'm going to tell it. We were working at a yard sale yesterday, and I had told the kids beforehand, there's a lot of glass around here. Y'all don't knock anything off. Guess who knocked a glass off and broke it? For the recording, I'm pointing at myself. Knocked it right off, smash, in front of all the kids. And they were not surprised at the glass. They were all like, oh, we got you now. <laughs> Mr. Josh. <laughs> like, yes, I did it. I broke the glass. Oh. And that's what we do. It's so easy to look in the mirror in verse 24. For he who looks at himself and goes away and forgets what he was like. And this is what we do. We look in the mirror and we see the truth. And when the truth hurts, we forget. It is so much easier to forget and avoid than to deal with the truth. But God's not going to let his people do that. Only for a moment. Will he allow you that to go on? He's soon going to correct. Now God's day is a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day, so I'm not sure how soon he will correct, but he will. Look at verse 25. This is the key text for us this morning. 
This is what we are in verse 24. We forget what we were like in verse 23, but now, verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, this is the one who does well. And what is the perfect law? If you would, turn to Psalm 19. I thought about so many texts in Deuteronomy, so many verses in Leviticus, so many times where Jesus quotes the Old Testament in the New Testament, but God led me to the psalm Psalm 19, where God has given one of the most perfect examples of his perfect law. Because if we ask, what is the perfect law? What does that look like and how do I keep it? You'll never satisfy the requirements of the Old Testament. There's no longer even a temple to offer sacrifices in. You can't keep it. But Psalm 19, verse 7, gives us the perfect law of God. Now, I have to quote Ezekiel. As you're turning there, for this is what we must be careful of. Ezekiel 33, 31, if you like to take notes, says this. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, and their heart is set on their gain. We must not approach Psalm 19 this way. We must not approach Psalm 19 as ready to hear and ready to act like we're ready to follow Psalm 19, but in our hearts knowing we're not going to. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. And it is. Everything God says is not perfect. It is right. It is, it, is, it is perfect in the best way perfect can be. Because the American idea of perfect, the human idea of perfect, has room for error. Because we'll never achieve the perfection of God. But God has it. God, who created a solar system, and I'm a huge space nerd, created a solar system that put us on the third planet that revolves so perfectly around the sun that we neither cook nor freeze. Because where he put us is perfect. The only place like that that we can find. It's perfect. And what does it perfectly do? Reviving the soul. Taking the soul that is dead in sin, that is buried in the grave or, or buried in the depths of the sea, and he reaches down and he lifts it up. And he revives it. Not according to a human standard, because a human standard leads to death. It can't fix death. God's standard fixes death. He brings what was dead and nasty and covered in filth and brings it to life and life eternal. The reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure. We have a phrase in the English language, there's never a sure thing. And that's wrong. Because there is one sure thing in this universe, and that is what God says will happen. The testimony of the Lord is sure. So when God said in John chapter 10, if you're in my hand, nothing can snatch you out, that means the devil and you. Nothing can take you out of God's hand. When God says, I will return and get my people, that's going to happen. When God said, I will destroy the armies of darkness at the end of time, that's going to happen. When God says it, it is sure. And what is God sure of? He makes wise the simple. Making wise the simple. Uh, making the simple wise. I love this image because this is how I view myself. Making wise the simple. If there's any value 
in my education or my talk or my speech or my ideas, if there's any value in everything I bring to you on Sunday mornings, know that it is this. It is the Lord making wise the simple. Because in the flesh, I'm simple. I just want what I want and I'll pitch a fit if I don't get it. But what does God do to make wise? God says, no, we're not going to pitch a fit to get what we want. We're going to make right and do what I want. And this is the Lord who spoke surely, and it will happen. Now he's doing so, making wise the simple. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right. We are challenging this in every way in our society and culture. The standards that God has set up, we're changing and disrupting. I just saw today, so there's, uh, there's a social media called TikTok. All the young people kind of know about it. Uh, if you're over 50 and you have TikTok, awesome, you are really hip. And I saw a guy this morning on TikTok who said, every time the Apostle Paul writes about an ethic that our society doesn't agree with today, we need to take the Apostle Paul and throw him out. That's what we're doing now. But it is not the Apostle who needs to change. It is society who has gotten off of God's law, and it is society that needs to change even when it politically lines up with you. Even when it lines up with my Republican conservatism, I have to change when it's God's law. There are times when God would take the American First Amendment and he would throw it out in favor of his own words. And we must remember that, Christians. As good as our country is, God's country is better. God's nation is better. God's laws are better and his precepts are right. Notice the word right. How lovely it would be if everything I did was right. But how little that actually happens. And for God, that it's always right. He's always right. Everything he does and everything he says and everything he acts upon is always right. And this leads to what? Rejoicing the heart. Because when you're right with God, your heart can rejoice. And when your heart cannot rejoice, something is wrong between you and God. And has God done wrong? Never. Who has done wrong? The one looking in the mirror and the reflection looking back. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. I love this idea of purity here. Pure, without blemish, without spot, wrinkle, without a grain of sand to destroy it. It is pure, and it leads to verse 9. I love what, how God describes the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is clean. I love that. Any, does anybody else, speaking of TikTok videos, does anybody love when a pressure washer is cleaning scum off of something? You guys know what I'm talking about? It's so satisfying to watch it just rip the algae right off. And suddenly that concrete looks like actual rock. I didn't know it ever had that color. And it's clean in it. And that's what I think God's doing to my soul sometimes. I'm like a nasty algae-covered sidewalk that everybody's trampling on. And God has the pressure washer of the Holy Spirit. And he's cleaning me. And he's clean. The fear of the Lord is clean. And it endures forever. It won't get dirty again. What God has made clean will not become dirty again. Middle of verse 9, now the law of God has rules. 
The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. In a society where we have deemed truth as able to change as soon as your emotions change, God says my truth is the same forever. And it doesn't matter how anybody feels. It matters how God is. Your feelings do not change the nature of God. The nature of God changes your feelings. And righteous altogether. Verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold. And let's be honest, isn't this what our society wants? Every ambition and conversation and even political idea can be boiled down to where is the gold? Because in our society, the gold will buy me my happiness. And for a little while, I can squash that feeling of emptiness in my heart. I will buy my way into joy. And I have sat, church, especially in student ministry, I have sat in too many church services where where do I get my spiritual credit card and buy this Jesus you're trying to sell me? Because that's the pitch. Just come to Jesus and everything will be great from now on. And that's not the truth. Jesus said, I have no place to lay my head. They will persecute me. What will they do to you, my followers? This is not a sales pitch, but we've turned Christianity into an Amway a timeshare. Just, just buy in a little bit. Who's actually selling you that deal? It's Satan himself. You'll get all of this, but not really. You're going to sell your soul, and you'll become my slave. But we desire gold, don't we? And it, it leads to so much fear, doesn't it? I mean, I'm not going to harp on anything political, but, but honestly, if, if our ideas, if our, if our fear is coming from the gold and the lack thereof, then what are we doing? Is God off his throne? Can the nations of the world, if all of them come against us now and make war, will it disrupt God's will for your life? It will be God's will for your life. That's the thing I think we don't want to confront sometimes terribleness that's happening to me was ordained by God and I don't know how to reckon with that right now. So instead of falling on my face and saying, Lord, I trust you no matter what, we explain it away. It's somebody else's fault. It's the devil doing it to me. It's not. Because look, even more than fine gold, middle of verse 10, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Verse 11, moreover, by them your servant is warned, keeping them there is great reward. And is the reward gold? No. What is the reward, church? Is it, is it an eternal paradise where I get to continue to do what I like? No. The reward is standing and beholding the face of God and not having to bow my head. Because I've been resurrected in a new body and I can behold God's face and not be destroyed. The one who looks to the perfect and complete law will not forget what they saw. Church, look and do not forget. Look into the law of God and see how God is doing this for your good. Strip away the trappings. We have to. If you have to set fire to them and burn them like old ridden clothes, do so. And these trappings may have gotten in so deep that it feels like the Holy Spirit itself when it's actually just a tradition you've held on to. Now, I don't even mean church tradition. I just mean the way you live your life. 
Is it God? Is it God's law? Is it what God wants, the thing that you're holding on to so tightly? Because if it is, the reward is coming. But if it is not, and you are holding on to something that is going to turn to ash in your hands on the final day, I'm not saying you're lost and without Christ, but I am saying, are you going through misery right now that you don't have to? Because you trusted in something that you thought was going to keep you safe, that you thought was going to make you feel better, that you thought was going to save your soul, when in truth, it was draining you spiritually. See, this sounds like slavery to me, real slavery. Being caught in sin and so wrapped in chains that you feel like you cannot get free. This law of God does not lead to slavery or sinful chains. It leads to freedom. Look back at James chapter 1, verse 25. So we have a perfect law, which leads to a law of liberty. And I love this word liberty. Because we argue. And let's get bold, church. Let's be a little bold this morning. We argue about free will and who's got it and how much. But it's not what James teaches. James teaches that you have liberty. When you stand on the law of God, you have true freedom. No longer being what I joked with a couple of ladies this Wednesday, free-range humans on the government farm. True liberty in Christ who has freed me from sin. Liberty. True liberty, the very thing our nation was actually founded upon and the thing we've gotten so far away from. But even worse, evangelical Christianity in 21st century America has gotten away from the true gospel of liberty. We've just chained ourselves to another horse and this one's dying as well. In less than an hour, man, I'm going to start screaming. In less than an hour, I cannot bear this. We can bring people in in the American church, they've never experienced Christianity or any religious service before, and we can bring them in and in less than an hour, preach to them, get them saved, and if the water's ready, dunk them? And that's it? And we can send them to the back row and say, Easter's coming, be ready. Is that Christianity? No! I can't find that in the Bible, so I have to ask, why would we do it? And I've sat in church services, and I've sat in student meetings, and I've sat and heard the gospel of the Jesus credit card buy him today and save half off. Is this liberty? No. This is a traditional trapping that will just wrap chains around you. Break free of this stuff. Get out and go to the true Christ. And please don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about church tradition. God loves church tradition. He instilled it into his own church. A tradition of meeting together. A tradition of loving each other. A tradition of helping each other. Yes, even the tradition of tithing. <laughs> tradition is not bad, and that's not what I'm preaching against. I am preaching against false gospel that gets people to think they're saved when they're so far from the kingdom of God. Say this prayer and cut your hair. And we focus on the cutting of the hair, don't we? <laughs> as long as it looks right, it must be Jesus. Kills me. Kills me. That, that all the pictures of Jesus, nobody in 21st century America would actually want Jesus to have that hair in church. Right? Hair down to here, all nicely curled, right? 
Like, Jesus, you're, you're a good preacher and all, but we need you to snip a little off there. <laughs> gets, gets in the way of the collar. <laughs> Turn to John chapter 8, verse 31. John chapter 8, verse 31. Let's have a, some real liberty this morning. And please, don't misunderstand me. I'm not preaching against things we do in church. Not at all. I've heard a lot about passing plates. Churches should pass plates. They shouldn't pass plates. And I am convinced that somewhere, some way back in church history, a church started passing a plate because the Jews had a money box out in the front of the temple. A church started passing the plate because they had elderly folks who couldn't walk as well. And some servants got together and said, let's just take the box to them. And they started teaching young men to serve in church by doing that. That's a good thing. Whenever I see these plates going around, that's what I think of. Christian service. That's right. Don't let even the world take away good Christian gospel tradition that God has given you. Passing the plate's a great thing. Wearing a suit is a great thing. If you do it for the Lord. If you pass the plate for the Lord. But if I stand in the mirror and I pull up the tie, and I didn't wear one this morning on purpose just so I could do this. If I pull up the tie, and I go, ah, there, now everyone will think of how handsome I am. No. But instead, if I stand in the mirror and go, Lord, I think you'll like that today. I think that will please you today, God, and that's why I've done it. That is the law of liberty. That is liberty. John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And see, we haven't abided in God's word, and that's what's led us to the state we're in. Because we took a gospel of a sinner's prayer that will save you, even though you can't find that prayer in the New Testament anywhere. Nor is it to be found in the Old Testament. If you abide in my word... What is the word of God concerning salvation? Repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But see, this takes discipleship. This takes walking with people. You are truly my disciples. Verse 32, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Real freedom. Real liberty. Real biblical principles that we should be founded on is knowing the truth of Christ. Because I can have the best education and have the most experience and not have Christ and walk into most churches and put on the right church service and Jesus have nothing to do with it. And it'll look great. But it wouldn't have been of God. Because it's not truth. Truth is Christ. Truth should point you to Christ. And truth should not leave you wondering what to do with said Christ. Truth should lead you to either repent or worship said Christ. That's my goal today. Not to leave you feeling like, well, just beat up again. James is a beat up book, I'm telling you. I have been through some verses where I'm like, Lord, why? I want to say nice things. I just started this job. I want them to like me a little bit. God said, they'll like the scripture if you preach it accurately. 
That's what we should like. You know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This truth of God gives true freedom, true spiritual freedom from sin. Verse 33, And they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So they declared back to Jesus Christ, We're not slaves to anything. We don't follow anybody. We're independent. No further comment. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And this is the truth. Those who practice, those who willfully and joyfully enjoy their sin, this is what God hates, what God is going to pour His wrath upon, what God is going to judge. Verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever. It will come to an end. The thing that has you enslaved will end. It may end soon. It may end when God pours out his wrath upon the earth, but it will crumble into nothing. What will last forever? The sun remains forever. So which do we want to be in? Do I want to be in the system or the place or with the guy who's going to end? Or do I want to be with the son who has been exalted, who was sacrificed and risen and set on high for my salvation and for yours? That's who's remaining forever. And if you want to remain forever, that's where you must be. Verse 36. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Church, who has set you free? What have you trusted in? Because I promise you right now, even if you feel wrapped in chains of sin and darkness, if your hope is in Jesus Christ, the anointed Son of God, Himself also God in the Trinity, your chains will be broken. I don't know where. I don't know when. I can't give you that promise, but what I can promise you is that in true Christian liberty in Christ, you will be set free. You may go your whole life with something chained around you. Paul had it. He had a thorn still attached to him that he asked God, pleaded with God, take it away from me. And God said, no. My strength is sufficient. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Those who practice sin are its slaves. It is a harsh master that will lead you to spiritual death. It is a harsh master that will whip you and hurt you and kill you. And as soon as you're done, it'll move on to the next. But it is a humble, gentle, loving master who takes who used to be a slave to sin and with the gospel sets free to Christian service. There are only two masters, church. And I'm convinced arguing about things like free will is a trick of the enemy to keep us in his service. There are only two masters. Sin or Christ. Who do you serve? You serve one, I promise you. And if it's sin, you don't have to. You can go to the other master who will set you free. Printed two pages today. In James, 
There's a word that I'd like to talk about as we get close to the end. The word perseveres. James 1.25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Do we want to be blessed today? Do we want to be blessed in being a doer? Do we want to be blessed in the perfect law, the law of liberty? Then you must persevere. You must persevere. The word persevere there is uh, in the Greek dictionary as I remain beside, I stand by, and I serve the equivalent of. Some definitions. Turn to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. What does it mean to persevere? This church, you can look back in our history and find many times where Christianity had to persevere under threat of death, under threat of sword, and under threat of, of mouths of lions in the Colosseum. We've had to persevere. I sometimes wonder if social media is also something we have to persevere, an enemy that has been sent to fight us and hurt us and destroy us. Never in human history have we not been able to gather and be alone and separate from the world's influence, the world's influence is in our, all of our pockets as I speak. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. And let us, that's being the church now, let us not grow weary of doing good. And it's so easy, isn't it? It's so easy to grow weary of doing good because I want to give out food, but it's easy to grow weary when the same person comes back again and again who doesn't even remember me from the last time and tells me the exact same story again. It's easy to grow weary. It's easy to grow weary when you serve in church and you feel like nobody has recognized it. It's easy to grow weary when it seems like it's never going to stop. It's easy in family and, and, and spousal relationships when it feels so hard and you're fighting to hold on. And why? Because you feel so underappreciated. It is easy to grow weary. But the command is let us not. Let us not. And how can we do that? How can I not grow weary of doing good for the, it seems like the entire world is imploding and collapsing and on fire and I just want to give up? For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. And I can't promise you when that season's over. God holds the information for his own self. Says, I will say to the son, when it is time, go and retrieve our people and he will go. But until then, no man knows the day. Every time, every time you start to feel like it's the end of the world, remember, no man knows the day, not even you. Not even I. So instead, instead of worrying about the end of the world, worry instead about your loved ones who do not yet know Christ. For the end may come when you least expect it. In fact, what did Jesus promise? If I will come as a thief in the night, and no one will know I am coming. You'll hear wars and rumors of wars and rumors of a false Christ somewhere else, but that won't be me. You'll know me, and I will appear. Verse 10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we're given two categories of people here. As we have opportunity, so when the opportunity arises, and let's be honest, we all have opportunities. We could, we could each say our opportunities we've had, even today, this week. 
So as they come up, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Category number one, everyone. Category number two, the church. So you're called to do good to everyone, and then especially the church. And we must not flip that. We must not say, well, we got to protect us and take care of us first, and then we'll take care of everybody else. Now, that's not the same thing as being a good steward of God's house so that you can care for everyone. There are times when the leadership and the church has to say, no, we're not going to do that because God has called us to do this. And it may look like we're not helping somebody for that, but we know God wants this. Does that make sense? That's a lot of abstract hand motions right there. <laughs> Everyone. The flesh will take that word and find the one you don't have to love. It will identify the person or the people group or the idea that is so offensive to you that you can say, well, not them. Not that one. On social media, we've gotten it down now to theological points about order of service. And that's a reason that I don't have to love. That's not the command here. Let us do good to everyone. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Turn the other cheek. Right? When Peter cut off an ear, Jesus put the ear back on. The one who is leading him to death. Do good to everyone and then especially the church. The gathered of saints, the ones who love and love truly. Church, we must not grow weary. Because growing weary is death. Despite pressure from the world, pressure from the flesh, we have opportunities to do good. Let us use them for everyone and then the church. And the church is special. There is a category given by Paul for the church because the church worships Christ. But we are not called to ignore the rest of our community. We are to do good to all. And doing good to all means being ready to witness and disciple and reach all. And you're going to find people who will test you. In fact, I promise you, God will give you the one who specifically you won't get along with. And he'll do that, why? For sanctification. Over the years, I've had the privilege of discipling some young men. But there have been times when I would go, Lord, could we at least speak the same language at times? These kids are saying things. I'm, I'm already old. I don't understand what they're talking about. And I've had those very same students come back and tell me, thank you for everything you did. I, I really think I know God because of you in that church. And they'll mature to understand that it wasn't me at all still feels like me because I was the one who put on the thing for them, had made church happen for them. But they'll grow to understand that it was always God. It was always the Lord making it happen. That I was just another clay pot that God was pouring into so that I could pour out. This leads to a term that is ripe with theological significance, but I don't want to get really into that because I want to stay with James. And that's the term perseverance of the saints. Famously found in the tulip. Just about every Christian I've ever met believes it, though they have different ideas about how it happens. But essentially, we're talking about eternal security 
the idea that the saints of Christ will not give up because Christ will not allow them to give up, giving you a very, very low definition. A couple of quotes for some famous preachers. Charles Spurgeon said this about perseverance. He said, the saints prove their conversion by their perseverance, and that perseverance comes from a continual supply of divine grace to their souls. R.C. Sproul said, we are secure, not because we hold tightly to Jesus, but because he holds tightly to us. Now let's go to the one who absolutely said it best. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. The Apostle Paul, led by the Spirit of God, gives us the greatest definition of Christian perseverance that I could find. Certainly greater than any man's quote. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Now, when Paul says that he is sure, he's speaking as an apostle now. He's speaking as one led by the Holy Spirit to give Holy Scripture. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now notice who's doing the good work. Did I start the good work? God started the good work. He began the good work. I responded in repentance and belief and received salvation because of a good work that God preached to me. And the beginning of the good work in my life was putting me in a place where the gospel blew by me. John chapter 3, Jesus said the the Spirit blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but you don't know where it's going. At some point, if you're a Christian today, the Spirit came by you. And this was a work of God. The gospel was preached. Romans 10, how can they hear without a preacher? It was preached to you. And God made it happen. And I'm so thankful that he did. I'm so thankful that I am not the, the, the actuator of my salvation because I never would be saved. Now people hear that and they instantly say, are you saying somebody can't be? No. Jesus clearly said, if you come to me, I will not cast you out. If you repent and believe, you shall be saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. But he who began this good work, and God has to begin it, is the same one who will bring it to completion. I'm so thankful that I am not responsible for completing my salvation because if I was, I would never make it. As soon as it got hard, I would give up. As soon as it got not less fun, I would give up. And as soon as anybody came against me, I would give up. Because it's not me. It is Christ who brings it to completion. And the apostle is sure about this. Why? Because he lived it. This is the man who could write 2 Timothy and say, I have been poured out. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. That sounds spiritually arrogant, but Paul knew the truth. My time is coming to an end. And he who began a good work in me on the Damascus road completed it. You ever wonder why the Bible doesn't record Paul's death? Because it doesn't. Church history records that the Romans beheaded Paul somewhere between AD 65 and 70. A lot of scholars have other times. They think it could be. No one's exactly sure. Acts doesn't record it. It ends with Paul in prison. 
And I love that because in a storytelling sense, especially Greco-Roman storytelling, we want to hear that resolution, right? He either breaks out of prison and runs off in the fields and the credits come up, right? Or, or he dies, you know, like Braveheart. He's yelling, he's like, ah, and they kill him. That doesn't happen. He's just in prison in Rome. That's like the worst ending to a story ever. Except it's the Bible. And what's the ending of the story? It's not even about Paul. It's about Jesus. Does the Bible leave Jesus hanging? Does the Bible leave Jesus in a tomb? Does the Bible leave Jesus even in heaven, waiting to come back? No. The Bible has him on a white horse, roaring back to get his people and crush his enemies and bring it all who have repented and believed in him to a great wedding feast. This is the day of completion. Christian, this is what you are persevering for. And you're doing so because of a Christ who loves you personally. Jesus, who has your name. Think about that for a second. He knows your name. Oh, Christian, and he is waiting to come and get you. He is excited to bring you home to the Father. He is ready to start that wedding feast. And the whole time while he's waiting, the Spirit is with you and I now, persevering. Hold on. You can almost hear the Spirit in quiet moments, right? Hold on. Don't give up. You think it's bad now? It's going to get way worse. Don't give up. And I won't let you give up. I've never wanted to try bungee jumping. Sorry, I'm just enjoying you all wondering what bungee jumping has to do with this. <laughs> I've never wanted to try bungee jumping, but it gives me a great spiritual analogy. If my life has to hang over the pit of hell, what do I want tied to my soul? If it's based on me and I'm the one who secured the rope, I would have no confidence that I would not fall in. But if I am tied by a heavenly string, stained with the blood of Christ, and secured by the will of God, made evident by my fruit that I demonstrate of my repentance and my belief, and God himself is the one who has tied the knot holding me, I shall not fear to swing out over the pit of hell and declare the gospel to the world. God will complete you, but only if you are in him. So church, turn back to James. And look now into God's mirror, not with your law, not with your understanding. Look now with God's law and his understanding. Verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. Christian, do you feel blessed right now? Because I do. Knowing that it is when I look in that mirror and I see the worst of the worst, but I can also see the fingerprints of God. And in him, my soul is secure. Turn to Jesus now. And I'm not talking about repentance for the first time, though if it's necessary, there is no other one. 
No, church, I'd like to end with you. you. You true Christians, turn to Jesus now and receive that joy that is bubbling up inside of you but that the world has thrown dirt on. Receive that joy once again. Understand there is a wellspring in you and it is rising up and it will push through all that the world has thrown upon you. Turn to Jesus now and look into that mirror with the perfect law of his liberty and his freedom. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, once again, we thank you for your work and your ministry. Lord, I want to thank you personally for the desire of my heart is to bring your word true and accurate. Lord, to turn from the false gospel of the world that I can be what I want to be and it will become so if I say it is so. Lord, this is a dangerous, sinful pride that is leading many to the pit of hell. Instead, Lord, let me turn to the truth that it, it is as you say it is so. And Lord, and you have declared over my life a security. You have spoken over my life, Lord, as a believer, that nothing will snatch me out of your hand. And God and all the Christians pray today for the loved ones we have who are not yet saved. Lord, we witness to them and we preach to them as we are commanded to. For how are they here without a preacher? Lord, and we pray for that spirit to blow on them and awaken them, Lord, and bring them to you. But the command must go out to repent and believe. The responsibility of man to stop their sin and turn to God. And this command is just and right. And all who reject it, Lord, cause you to be fully justified on the final day of judgment. Oh Lord, I have a hope. I have a hope in your glorious Son. I have a hope in this glorious empty tomb we're about to celebrate. I have a heavenly hope that was given to me not by the thoughts of man, but by the very word of God. Lord, turn our hearts away from that which is false. Turn our hearts away from that which would entice us and lead us to sin. God, instead, turn my heart and my face upright and let me look straight ahead down a highway of holiness that has many dangers, many toils, many cares, but one that I walk holding your hand. And when I stumble, Lord, you will not let go. And if I fall, you will lift me back up. And even if I swing over the pit of hell, I know that by my repentance and my belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, I am secure and I will persevere. So Lord, let us look into the mirror now and let us not forget that when I look into the perfect law of liberty, I see a perfect God and a perfect Savior and a perfect Spirit who will never fail, who cannot fail, and have all declared through the gospel of Jesus, they will bring my redeemed soul home. We thank you, Lord Jesus, and all of God's people say, Amen.